Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. One of the most popular forms of literature today is the memoir. These days, folks with barely three decades under their belt are writing their memoirs. But on this week's episode, we hear from four wise women who relate a lifetime of memories, along with valuable lessons learned in theirs. We begin with Southern baker and activist Lisa Donovan, whose book, Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger, is a raw, honest, and brave telling of a life that will leave you hungry for more. Then, we turn to Alyssa Altman, whose 2016 memoir, Trafe, My Life as an Unorthodox Jew, tells a tale from an entirely different perspective than Lisa Donovan's. Here's one twist. On the cover of her book, Alyssa, the unorthodox Jew, is seated on Santa's lap. We end on a hilarious note with Mary Giuliani, New York City caterer to the stars, who credits all her success with tiny hot dogs. Also the name of her recent memoir, we're taking a delicious literary journey with some of the very best on this week's Louisiana Eats. I'm Lisa Donovan. I'm the author of Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger. On the cover of Lisa Donovan's new memoir, we see an image of a woman in profile at work in her kitchen. She's confident, peaceful, and self-contained. It's as ordinary and familiar as a snapshot of your grandmother. It's also as transcendent and timeless as the fresco of a saint. They wanted to uh, have me on the cover, and uh, I, I kind of was a, a little uh, resistant, if not a lot resistant. <laughs> You know, part of writing this book, I really wanted women to feel like they could find themselves in the story, not necessarily just to hear about me. And I felt like putting yourself on a cover was a little counterintuitive to that. So I said, look, you know, I really want it to be a little anonymous. I want it to be timeless. I want it to feel very painterly. I want it to feel very classic. Lisa's a celebrated pastry chef and James Beard award-winning food writer whose life's journey hasn't always been easy. Her story is one of survival in the face of poverty, abuse, and sexism. But in the pages of her memoir, Lisa explores how reclaiming her narrative is not merely an act of ego, but one of solidarity, universality, and inspiration. Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger is so raw and honest and mm. revealing. What compelled you to tell this brave story? Um, gosh, I don't, I don't think I even knew I was going to go into a lot of the things that I ended up going into. 
when I started this, I thought I was going to tell a mostly useful, but, uh, you know, potentially, uh, I, I don't, I shouldn't use the word pedestrian, but compared to what I did, slightly pedestrian uh, version of um, my experiences. And, um, you know, I was really interested in making sure I held the line of um, some real truth uh, about where I was coming from in certain moments of my life. And then when when you are writing memoir, the trick becomes being really honest with yourself. And if you're going to write, I think, in my opinion, a memoir that's worth a damn, then you really have to honor however hard it feels to go down the paths that you end up going down, whether you intended to go down those paths at all or not. You, you just tell the truth about the bad boyfriend, the unexpected pregnancy that keeps you tied together. And I'd like you to describe for us how baking has saved your life again and again. Baking has been such a lifeline in your life. I think initially it was about finding some sense of control over um, variables, any kind of variables that I could find some like some amount of control over I found in the kitchen when everything else felt really out of control, I could step into a space um, and put things together and really pour myself into it. There were no other voices in that room. There were uh, no other opinions in that room. Even my own voice of judgment and self-doubt became something very far away in the kitchen. And I could really just explore that space as a kind of ultimate freedom, which I didn't feel like I had a whole lot of. And I just, for whatever reason, I felt like I didn't have a whole lot of options at some point in my life. And that gave me a space to make decisions. And it gave me a space to really feel as empowered as I think I am inherently as a human finding a certain spirit of generosity and baking, I think also, you know, then saved me when I was a young mother and a young wife and we were struggling financially and it literally became fiscal, um, you know, salvation. So in various ways, it has always been this touchstone for me to figure out a way out of something, um, which has been a real, you know, blessing. One of the incredible things that you share with us in the book is your second child, Maggie. Mm. I just loved the story of how you describe raising Maggie at City House, a restaurant you worked at when she was a little new baby and a toddler, and you described her as having been raised at Table 21. I just (laughs) thought that was charming and yet so illustrative of the situation that women find themselves in. I mean, I think the funny thing is, if that's what you have to do, especially as a woman, that's what you do. You know, you take your your son to your college classes, you take your daughter to work when you need to. Um, I think it took me some time to sort of feel the true frustrations of that moment of like, you know, why our country doesn't actually support a middle class anymore enough where the work I was doing in this world, which was significant, you know, and I was working hard and I was working diligently and I was working consistently wasn't enough uh, for a family. You know, I was bringing in 50% of the income and why it wasn't enough for uh, my daughter to have actual proper care. And so, you know, I think for me, the, the, I did what I had to do and I got through it and I 
I considered it over and done. And then I started reflecting back about sort of the nuance of that actual situation and the frustration of that actual situation, um, because too, it impacted my career. How much, how much of a better employee I could have been or how much more dedicated I would have been if I knew that my children were taken care of instead of constantly having to do this push-pull of counting hours and worrying about health care and worrying about where they were and you know, worrying about meeting my husband at just the right minute so we could exchange the kids so he could go work. You know, like doing these things that I think people don't really understand have to be done when you're living day to day, paycheck to paycheck. So if I can speak to anything about that moment, it's just, I really do think there's a huge misunderstanding in this country about what it takes to survive as a middle-class working class family in the United States. A lot of this impetus comes from your childhood mm -hmm. and the role that food played in your childhood. I loved the stories of your Nana's Tortillas. Mm -hmm. um, Mary Cordova Gutierrez was her name, correct? Tell yeah. me about Aunt Rose and Nana and their tortillas. Uh, it's nice to hear her name said. <laughs> um, so, you know, I grew up around these women, my, my Aunt Rose and my mother and my Nana. They were all three and they still are sort of these um idols in my mind these sorts of uh totems of of something and i think a lot of this book was me trying to figure out what that something was because there was also a lot of complications which you find in this book of how i you know have only been able to sort of come to them in small measures over my adulthood and how i've had to create an expanse between me and them in order to sort of figure out how to let go of a lot of their pain which I think is the duty of, of daughters and <laughs> in general for their mothers. I think we carry around our mother's grief and pain and troubles, even whenever we didn't experience them alongside those women. And I felt that through my own mother and I felt that through my aunt. And so, you know, I had these really revelatory moments um, as, a, as a baker um, of identifying sort of the intimacy of that through her tortillas and through that food and through that space, which is also kind of going back to your other question, another way that food has really kind of pushed me into, you know, catapulted me into a different understanding about who I am as a person. And being able to connect with her after years of really just trying to sort of compartmentalize her and my mother and my Aunt Rose in my space, you know, tortillas were a safe place where I could uh, go back into their world and um, really think about them through making, which is the space that I feel most in control. So, you know, it was no surprise to me that that was the doorway. <laughs> I loved watching you vicariously in the book go mm -hmm. through the doorway and take the pain of the earlier maternal generations and turn that into the truth seeker that I believe you are today. Well, I mean, that's, you know, again, like kind of your, your other question is how do you, why do you go so deep or how do you go so deep in a book like that? You kind of start with one of these little kernels. And then if you're being, if you're being sincere in your effort with the book, you kind of just keep going <laughs> and that's where you get taken. So <laughs> I loved the way you ended your book. Would you 
tell us about um, your whispered prayer to Maggie, your daughter? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll let the readers discover it for themselves as they find their way there. But, you know, I think it was a real moment of realization for me that day, the, all of the things that sort of met at this sort of apex of my personal life and of my career and of, of my world as a mother. Um, and I realized I was, I was letting go of some things and I was also passing something on. Um, what I work really hard to be is a hopeful person. And it was the most hopeful moment I think I had felt in a long time. And, and the words that I spoke to her were full of that kind of hope. Because um, I think you can have hope and still understand all the trouble, you know, still understand all the pain. And I think, I think the journey of this book, uh, part of the journey of this book was facing a lot of that pain and fa facing a lot of that struggle, but really making sure you maintain this almost unbridled hope and try to give that to as many people as you can, but especially to your daughters, you know? <laughs> Acclaimed pastry chef and writer, Lisa Donovan, her new memoir is Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger. Coming up next, best-selling author Anne Hood explores her life through what she was eating during the most salient times. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. My name is Anne Hood, and I'm the author of Kitchen Yarns, Notes on Life, Love, and Food. For as long as she can remember, Anne Hood wanted to be a writer. A voracious reader growing up, Anne lost herself in novels like Little Women and Dr. Zhivago. While earning her B.A. in English, she fell in love with the works of Willa Cather and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Deciding she needed some adventures to write about, Anne became a flight attendant for TWA and traveled the world. During long international flights, 
she began working on short stories that would become her first novel, Somewhere Off the Coast of Maine, published in 1987. In the decades since, Anne has become a prolific and best-selling writer, receiving multiple awards for her novels and nonfiction. Her books explore the human condition, frequently drawing upon her own life experiences, including her journey with grief following a terrible family tragedy. In her newest book, Kitchen Yarns, Anne provides readers with stories from her life and the recipes that carried her through its ups and downs. And you're a novelist, you're a food writer, but your memoirs are something really special because of the intimate stories that you tell in that particular form. Thank you, Poppy. You know, it's so funny because when I wrote my first novel, um, I also wrote an essay that was in the Washington Post. And my brilliant publicist at the time, you know, here I am, 28 years old, it's my very first novel. She takes me aside and says, you have got to write memoir. <laughs> and I thought, who cares about my life? <laughs> but she was on to something. It's a form I did ultimately take to. And like writing, I like exploring the real things that are happening around me. Well, you've had a long life in food and a lot of interesting lessons along the way. Tell us about your very, very unusual childhood memories that involve Marilyn Monroe and fried chicken of all things. <laughs> it was such a part of my, my growing up. To me, when I eat that fried chicken, I think of my you know very young years being in the station wagon with my parents and my brother. You know, when you're in the station wagon with your sibling, there's the line in the middle that you can't cross. And there is a cooler, and in that cooler is the fried chicken that my mom and dad spent, you know, all that morning preparing. And uh, we would drive the Blue Ridge Highway. And I just have these wonderful memories of how beautiful it was and being in that car and then pulling over at a picnic table and eating our lunch. And uh, one bite of that fried chicken brings me back there. Because food does that, right? It just takes one smell or one bite. And you're back to another part of your life. It is so evocative the way food brings it all together. And I, I always believe that your taste buds are tied to your heartstrings, don't you? I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. On one of these trips, we drove to West Virginia to visit my mother's friend, Lottie May. And of course, we stopped. We had our fried chicken picnic. And we were coming back, and the Four Seasons were singing, Big Girls Don't Cry. And I heard on the radio, they, they even interrupted the song to say that Marilyn Monroe had died. Hmm. And I was a little kid, but I, I kind of knew she was an actress, you know, a famous mm-hmm. My mother started crying. And, and then it seems like moments later, we were in a pretty bad car accident. We all were fine, ultimately. Um, But that has been like sort of an apocryphal story in my family and to me, you know, all those things together, fried chicken, Four Seasons, West Virginia, (laughs) and Marilyn Monroe. But then, compelled by authenticity, I don't know, you started researching dates and and it turns (laughs) out your childhood memories kind of all jumbled together. It's completely wrong. (laughs) Because... The year Marilyn Monroe died, the Four Seasons, that song wasn't out, and we were not on that trip. None of the things line up. And so I was thinking a lot about food and memory, 
and the strange connections that we make from our childhood. But you know what? To me, that all happened that night. Uh huh. And that's it the will way... forever be that way. Well, you are a woman of many lives. Uh, many husbands. You're so brave. You just tell us the whole the whole four one one. But it's isn't it a grand thing to have the world view of life that anyone who's has got a few decades under her belt, as you and I do, has. You were a TWA stewardess, and I was. T- would you talk to us about Chateaubriand? <laughs> So imagine I was 21 years old and just out of college, majored in English. You know what? how many jobs there are for English majors. And I thought, I have to see the world in order to be a writer. And so I decided to become a flight attendant and happily was hired by TWA because I wanted to see the world. You know, in those days, United and America didn't fly internationally. So it was either TWA or Pan Am if you wanted to fly internationally. And I, I have to tell you, Poppy, sometimes I tell these stories and people's mouths drop open. They're like, when was this? What are you talking about? In coach, if you were on a flight, say, from New York to San Francisco, you got a menu, a choice of three entrees. We did a dinner mint service with um, after-dinner drinks, and we'd put dry ice on the, the cart and throw water on it. So we'd walk in fog, you know, down the <laughs> It, you had it was food as theater in the air, wasn't it? It it was it was, and in first class, and again, this was domestic flights, coast to coast. One of the choices, and the one everybody wanted, was Chateaubriand. And and you know, I honestly, I believe it's a tenderloin. You would actually ask the people, "How do you want it cooked? Medium rare?" You know, you, you and then you threw it in that oven and hoped for the best. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, eventually, though, you marry and you settle down. And I, I, again, kudos, you know, I hope to one day um, be a girl who can write kindly about my two previous marriages. (laughs) 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 But you have, you've had three children in your life. And the stories of your children are so compelling. And, And anybody who's a fan of yours knows about grace. It takes such grace to be able to write about the death of a child. Yes. You know, it was something I thought I would never do. In the immediate aftermath of Grace dying, she was five. This was back in 2002. Um, And she died from a virulent form of strep throat. It was very sudden. And uh, for at least a year, probably two years, Everybody, knowing that I'm a writer who writes about things that matter to me and personal things, urged me to write. And I thought, I will never write about this. It's too painful. And then one day, someone brought us dinner, as they were doing. And I took a bite, and it was the worst lamb stew I've ever had. (laughs) And we looked at each other, and we said, this is terrible. And it was a sign that we were moving through to the next phase, like we could taste food again. And it made me think about comfort food, you know, how food comforts us, how simple things comfort us. You know, Emily Post way back in the 20s said, if someone is mourning, all you should do is bring them good broth to, you know, rejuvenate and comfort them. And so I wrote an essay about comfort and food. And I wrote another one about knitting, which I took up after Grace died. 
and knitting and grief. And slowly these essays grew into an actual memoir. But it, you know, it was something I never set out to do. It's just I'd have this small spark of realizing something new about loss, and I'd want to write about it. And is there a way that you remember Grace through food? Absolutely. Um, she was the funniest kid. She always wanted to wear, like, stripes. And it used to drive my mother crazy. Stripes, polka dots, plaid. You name a pattern. She wanted it on with the other patterns. She wore glasses from the time she was two. So these little wire rim glasses and bright blue eyes. And her favorite meal was sliced cucumbers and pasta with butter and Parmesan. Not an unusual meal for a five-year-old. <laughs> but that was heavenly to her. And um, when her friends would come over after school, I was instructed to do two things, kiwi and Campbell's chicken with star soup. <laughs> and so she had that. Those were her things that I always think of. But I can think of her on her little stool. She used to help me make this apple tart. It's actually in the, in the recipes of the book. She'd stand on her stool and I'd cut the apples and she'd put them in the concentric circles, you know. You know, in the introduction. I, I talk about MFK Fisher a little, the wonderful food writer. A line that she said in an interview really struck me when I when I read the interview, but kind of carried with me, and I, I made sure to put it in the book. She said, When I asked about why she wrote so much about food, she looked surprised, and she said, I don't write about food. I write about love. Mm. And for me, that's, you know, truer words were never spoken. And so that's what I wanted to convey, you know, that throughout love and loss, and disappointment and triumph, we always have that, you know, we always have food. And like you said, that wonderful thing, our heartstrings are connected to our taste buds, right? And um, if you can comfort someone or be comforted with food, then you're going to be okay. Anne Hood, author of Kitchen Yarns, notes on life, love, and food. Yiddish word treif can be used to describe foods considered unkosher and prohibited under Talmudic law. For award-winning author and food blogger Alyssa Altman, the word takes on an even broader definition. In her second book-length memoir, Treif, My Life as an Unorthodox Outlaw, Alyssa explores how tradition, religion, and the forbidden impacted her childhood growing up in Queens, New York. We spoke with Alyssa about her memoir and the role food has played in her life. You know, food is a constant for all of us, um, whether it's front and center of our lives or uh, it's something that is less than the sort of lightning rod, um, because it isn't, it isn't a lightning rod for everybody. Um, it, it is certainly for me. And when I grew up in the late 1960s and, and early 70s in, in New York, we were always at the table, and at the same time, the table was not always a place of great joy. It could be sometimes, but it could also be a place of great enmity. And so food was the thing that really tied us all together, um, at, certainly at holidays, 
um, but also, you know, at times as mundane as, as dinner time and breakfast time. It's very interesting, the dichotomy between the way you grew up, your two sets of grandparents. Your, your father's parents in particular were extremely religious, observative Jews. Yes. My grandfather, my father's father, came here uh, in 1905 um, at 11 years old by himself. Um, he ran away from arguably you know, an abusive home life um, in a tiny town in the Ukraine. My grandmother and my father's mother came here from Romania when she was two years old. Obviously, they were observant. Um, they were very connected to their faith. Um, they were very grounded in their faith as well as their culture. My mother's, both my mother's parents were born here. Um, my my grandmother was born in 1901 in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which I guess that would make her the like the original hipster. And um, <laughs> her husband was born in 1893 in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and they were Americans through and through. They uh, had very little connection to um, their uh, Austro-Hungarian past, and that was how they raised my mother. And so my mother didn't grow up with any kind of contradiction or paradox. She just, that, that was just who she was. But when my parents got together, here was my father, you know, the child of, of um, religious observant immigrants, and my mother, who was not. Um, and then when I came along, I was kind of, you know, pushed and pulled in different directions um, and uh, got all sorts of mixed messages on a regular basis. And, um, it, you know, there was a certain amount of um, ambiguity that I, that I grew up with and that I still struggle with, uh, even, you know, even now, all, all those years later. I, you know, I always look in the, in the mirror at, you know, times of the holidays and, and wonder, who am I? What am I? And that's the question that Trafe tries to, un, that it, it tries to unknot it. In Trafe, you actually describe near the beginning of the book, driving off a long distance to see a farmer about your Tamworth hog purchase. <laughs> this is this is this is true. I uh, you know and I'm I'm um you know I have a small family. There are just two of us and um no two people need a half a hog. They just don't. It's just <laughs> the way it is. But I drove off um up to Massachusetts. I had this hog raised for me. Um I shared it with some other people. And I went to pick it up, and I drove home. And as I was driving home, it was the fall. And so, um, you know, it was getting darker earlier. And I realized that it was a Friday night. It was the Jewish Sabbath. And here I was driving home with 150 pounds of pig in my, you know, in the back seat of my car. Um, and then that sort of sets the stage for the, you know, issues of paradox and contradiction that follow me through life. And yet your kitchen at home in Connecticut has so much family memorabilia in it. And I love the way you describe the the hutch, the cabinet of one of your grandmothers that you say gives off um, small clouds of chicken fat when you open <laughs> the doors. I'm completely convinced, and my, my father used to say that this is true, that chicken fat, um, or what, you know, what we call schmaltz, it's so strong and it's so dense that I believe that when you render it every single week for as long as my grandmother rendered it, because that, that, was, her, that was her cooking fat of choice, it infuses everything in, in, in furniture and clothes. And I used to walk into her apartment building when I was a little kid and hallways smelled like schmaltz. Another one of the dichotomies, the, the, the one grandmother 
who kept kosher had a big pattern in the meals. You write that it was toast and farina for breakfast and steak at lunch, and then dinner would be the full dairy dinner. And how, how do you pronounce that? Milchig. Milchig, right. Yeah, I was really surprised. And, you know, I didn't really know how she had fed my mother, um, when my mother was a child, because my grandmother wasn't kosher when I was after I was born at all. And my mother told me that, you know, she would come home from school and she would have a small steak for lunch. And I think that that was as much a point of pride as anything else, because this was, you know, after the Depression. Um, and to be able to afford meat on a daily basis was something that a lot of people did. And a lot of people took great pride in that. And then at night um, was was a dairy meal, and I think that there is some belief that it's it's actually uh, easier to digest at night. I, I don't know if that's true. Your your Gaga, your grandmother, why was her goulash the most treasured meal to you? Her goulash was was the most treasured meal because when she made it, it was the tie that bound us together, and I loved it. And I'm, I, I'm a big stew lover, and I'm probably a big stew lover because of that. I didn't grow up with any siblings, and so it was often just me and Gaga, and she practically lived in our house. And, and um, in the 70s, my mother went back to work full-time, and my father was working full-time. And so very often, you know, I would come home from school, and it was just Gaga and me in the kitchen, and so that's what she would cook for me. It got so that whenever she said to me, what would you like me to make for you? And I would say, make me your goulash. She would stand in the kitchen and just wouldn't look up until that goulash was done. And <laughs> nobody had ever done anything like that for me before. And so it was, it was, our, it was the tie that, that, bound us, that bound us together. And as I'm talking to you about it, my mouth is watering. <laughs> Do you have the recipe and you make it? Um, I, you know, my grandmother was not a recipe writer. Um, she was a, an amazing natural cook. I think she was one of the best natural cooks I've ever known. But we didn't have any cookbooks in the house. Um, she never looked at a newspaper recipe or, or a clipping. But I spent, you know, 18 years of my life watching her make it. And I actually wrote it as part of an article for the Wall Street Journal and it was it was good. It was you know it was it was good, but it it felt like it you know it wasn't grandma and it wasn't Gaga and you know my mother said to me, well, what do you, can you do you have a sense of what was missing? And I said, yeah, Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is often the hand that stirs the pot. Any of us who it love is, food, indeed. yeah, we know that. Well, it is certainly a fascinating, fascinating cultural study of immigrants and life in America and certainly your life in particular. And I'm so grateful to have had the chance to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Alyssa Altman, author of Trait, My Life as an Unorthodox Outlaw. origin of the ubiquitous cocktail party food known as hors d'oeuvres. And what exactly does that mean? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. 
Happy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes, available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor, and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. The North Shore is brimming with welcoming patios, boasting waterfront views, and decadent dishes. Indulge in fresh Louisiana seafood, locally grown produce, homemade sweet treats, and ice-cold brews. You're invited to feed your soul along the Tammany Taste Culinary Trail, just 40 miles north of New Orleans' French Quarter, and a world away. Plan your St. Tammany visit at louisiananorthshore.com. This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the origin of the ubiquitous cocktail party food known as hors d'oeuvres? And what exactly does that mean? Hors d'oeuvres is a French word whose direct translation means outside the work, which initially makes no sense at all until you examine dining tables of the 17th century where main courses were placed in succession on the table, but small plates of savory appetizers were placed on the side or outside of the meal's main work. The word first appears in a 1691 publication called The Royal and Bourgeois Cook, where it's explained as certain dishes served in addition to those one might expect in the normal composition of the feast. In late 19th century America, hors d'oeuvres was synonymous with appetizer, the first dish of a multi-course meal. After Prohibition, hors d'oeuvres became standard cocktail party food, where they were sometimes referred to as canapes. But wait, get this. Canapé is the French word for sofa. The story goes that some chef put something savory on a toast round and claimed it sat there like a person does on a sofa. No matter what you call them, canapes or hors d'oeuvres, at our next guest's famous catered affairs, they're often just tiny hot dogs. Let's hear what Mary Giuliani has to say about that. I'm Mary Giuliani. I am the owner of Mary Giuliani Catering Events here in New York City, and I am the author of Tiny Hot Dogs, a memoir in small bites. As an awkward kid growing up on Long Island in the 1980s, Mary Giuliani's dream was to one day become a famous actor, preferably a cast member on Saturday Night Live. Today, she plays a different kind of role as caterer to the stars. 
famous for her finger food recipes, Mary has spent almost 20 years working with A-listers in the worlds of fashion, art, and movies. In her memoir, Tiny Hot Dogs, she weaves together a collection of memories from her life while offering a glimpse into the career of a celebrity caterer. Could you start off by telling us about the name of the book? Because that alone was a real showstopper for me. Tiny, <laughs> tiny hot dogs. Well, it's everyone's favorite party food. And as a caterer for the last almost 20 years, I realized very quickly that all I needed to do was bring out those hot dogs on a tray and it's instant happy to a party. But I kind of took it a step further. The book starts in my childhood where I grew up um, in a traditional Italian Catholic family home, but in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. And all I wanted to be was like my friends. So therefore, I just wanted to be Jewish. Um, And so I tried very hard. I went to Hebrew school electively. I attended 178 bar and bat mitzvahs. And uh, (laughs) no matter how hard I tried, I wasn't successful. And um, I also was a little bit of an outsider. But at these fancy bar bar and bat mitzvah events every weekend, I became friends with the caterer who came out every weekend with the tray of pigs in a blanket. And that was where the love affair began. Fast forward to my current career, where I am a caterer, where I, I guess you could say I'm still chasing that tray. Um, but I decided to chase the tray because it's shown me um, glimpses into so many amazing worlds that I wouldn't, would have never normally seen if I didn't make that decision. So the tiny hot dogs, while it might be just a humble little piece of party food to some, has been a lot for me. <laughs> so how did you make this transition? Because you didn't set out to be a caterer. As captivated as you were by those tiny hot dogs, yep. catering wasn't your first choice for a career. No, it was not. I wanted to be an actress. I went to Georgetown University. I studied English. I was an English major and a theater minor. And uh, I left Georgetown, moved right back to New York, and tried to, um, you know, first I tried, I uh, auditioned for the Actors Studio for James Lipton. I was rejected. Um, I, my classmate, though, got in. Um, perhaps you've heard of him, Bradley Cooper. Oh, perhaps. Um, yeah, he got in and is doing quite well. Um, and I just, you know, kept waiting online at auditions. And, you know, money's running tight. And like many performers in New York City, I took a job in a catering company just to pay the bills. I was just there as a pit stop um, on my way to, I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. That was my ultimate goal. Um, and I was there for all about a month when it kind of hit me that, oh, wait, maybe this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. It combined, you know, catering and events combined theatrics and creativity and food. And I realized that um, I was actually quite good at event planning. I was I, I come from a long line of, I call them eaters and greeters, um, you know, by, from lots of great Italian cooks. And my grandmother was also in the hospitality industry. She, she owned several hotels. So it all kind of like came back to me. This dream I kind of didn't dream up um, started to unravel in front of me. And I, you know, decided to trade in uh, the stage for the party and um, <laughs> and um, worked for a catering company for three years, learned everything, deeply fell in love with the concept of a hard day's work. And then in 2005, started my own business out of my living room of my apartment. And uh, I love it. <laughs> well, what an incredible trajectory that you were on, because I love your stories about how this catering business has taken you from strippers to Harry Potter. Yep. <laughs> That's quite that a stretch. 
That is a sentence that we can say is absolutely true. Um, I was hired very early on to cater a party for a very fancy stripper um, and did it well and realized that stripper um, nightclub life was not for me. Um, <laughs> but um, And then went straight on to be hired to do the Harry Potter premiere, which was the largest event at that point I had ever catered, um, even with my previous company. But the opportunity arrived, and I, I did the best I could, and it, it makes for a good chapter in the book. <laughs> well, I love the way your life story takes you on this path, you know, so maybe you don't turn out to be a uh, television or film star yourself, but you sure have been rubbing elbows with them. So, yes. yeah. And so your old classmate, he becomes one of your clients. Tell us yes. about you and Bradley. Oh, that was, that was, that was really fun because um, we were friendly in college. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, super chums, you know, he, but, um, but I knew him and he had great reputation. And then um, years later, I get hired to cater Alyssa Milano's wedding, who was my, you know, who's the boss, my childhood best imaginary best friend. And if like that's not great enough, one of the guests there was Bradley Cooper, who I hadn't seen since graduated college. And he had since gone on that first hangover movie came out and he was a big star. You know, I was like, he's never going to remember me. He's a big star now. And he walked over to me and said, Marie. <laughs> and I was like, that's close. It's Mary. <laughs> and um, we kind of reconnected and then from just reconnecting, and of course, like, you know, he remembers we were at Georgetown together. Um, he then went on to be kind enough to hire me to cater some events for him. Mary, I, I want to ask you why you wrote this book, because I'm fascinated right now with this plethora of food memoirs. They seem to be expanding and expanding. Why did you jump into that pond and, and, and why did you write this book? Well, I, it's funny. I wanted to jump into that pond before I was allowed to jump in that pond. I, this is the book I wanted to write. I wanted to write stories. I love the idea of holding a black and white book and reading stories. And if you're lucky, you get a recipe from it um, or an idea. We all, you know, I, I say we're all fighting the same, we're all struggling from the same things. It's just we're all wrapped in different, you know, wrapping paper. And so I think the more you can make human connections through stories, I just really wanted to share these stories. Um, and I was really grateful for the opportunity to finally do that. There's nothing like a good story except maybe a tiny hot dog. A tiny hot dog. <laughs> so, <laughs> Poppy, that's great. Mary, you have just brought the whole thing all together for us. And I hope everybody puts tiny hot dogs on their reading list because the recipes are pretty yummy, too. Thank you so much. That was Mary Giuliani, author of Tiny Hot Dogs, a memoir in small bites. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and videos, too. And if you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. 
And if you've been dying to experience a real drag brunch, Poppy's pop-up style, please join me and a bevy of beauties at Tujac's Restaurant on Sunday, June 27th. To make reservations, call the restaurant at 504-525-8676. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Rouse's Markets, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods and wooden cellars, D'Agostino pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>